Well, conclusions are important. Whether in the movies, or in literature, or even in real life. I mean, some of us here today are thinking very much about how we will conclude our lives, and what kind of points will be made. What kind of closure will be brought? What final takeaways ought people think about when we're gone, when the story ends? Well, today we reach a conclusion. We finish looking at the life of Jacob from the book of Genesis, and uh, he indeed is one of the founding fathers or the patriarchs of all those who would ever have faith in this God, the God of the Bible. So first there was Abram, or eventually God changed his name to Abraham. Then there was his son Isaac, and then there was his son Jacob. So we're finishing up the life of Jacob. And these characters, and um, more importantly, how God interacts with these characters, these things are hugely important for those who would worship, again, the God of this Bible, that is, Christians today. Just, for, just so you know, Jacob actually doesn't die until the end of the book of Genesis. Uh, this conclusion of Jacob's life is more like a conclusion of focus. Uh, it, it, where we are in the book of Genesis, Jacob very much has been in focus. And then now this is the last chapter where, he go, where the focus is on him. But then it moves eventually to his son named Joseph. And we're going to cover that. Who knows when we're going to cover Joseph. Maybe in another year or something like that. Um, so if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Genesis chapter 35. If you're using the, the Bible in front of you, you can find that on page 29. Uh, and as we conclude Jacob's life today, we see first our ongoing need to worship. Our ongoing need to worship. And then second, our ongoing need to live by God's sovereign promises. Our ongoing need to live by God's sovereign promises. <coughs> Uh, so let's go ahead and dive into point number one, our ongoing need to worship. Uh, our passage begins with God calling and commanding Jacob, actually, to worship. So let's look there at verse 1 of chapter 35. God said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. Uh, so here God calls him basically with these four verbs there. It says it all, arise, go, dwell, and make. So it kind of leads up to this making. And what he's supposed to do is he's supposed to make this altar. And it's basically a platform where sacrifices to God could be made. Whether it would be a blood sacrifice that pointed to the sacrifice of Christ, the Lamb who takes away the sins of the world, or simply like a Thanksgiving offering or sacrifice. Or in this case... Uh, a drink offering where oil is poured out and even wine is poured out there. And it's all done in recognition that God is the God who sustains us. He is a good God. He gives, he gives me everything I have. And so I give back a little bit to this great and wonderful God. So this is a call to worship. Build an altar. That's what it means here. But this call sounds really familiar, doesn't it? If you've been tracking with us through the book of Genesis, we know that this call was given to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. There, God says, go. He, call, he sets his love upon this pagan people. They're not, they're not worshiping God. And he calls them, arise and go. Now, at that point in time, Genesis chapter 12, Abraham no, has no idea where he's going. But he does know that God will reveal to him where he's supposed to go, where he ought to go. 
But Jacob, obviously, as a grandchild of Abraham and then as a son of Isaac, he knows where he's supposed to be. It's just the book of Genesis shows that he's a little slow to finally get there. I think this call to arise, go, dwell, and make was, at one, on one hand, a comfort, but it was also a rebuke. We'll look at the rebuke there. I think it was a rebuke because God had called him to go, you know, many moons ago. And as the story goes, Jacob goes, he sort of meanders, but he, he, he goes... He doesn't quite go to the place that God had called him to, exactly. He says, go to the land of your fathers, and he kind of sort of wanders around uh, while he still technically could be in the land of promise that God had promised to Abraham, that God had promised to Isaac, that God had promised to Jacob. And along the way, you're kind of meant to see, ooh, okay, he's not going exactly where God wants him to go, and so he therefore gets into a lot of trouble. His daughter is violated by the people of the land, as we saw in Genesis chapter 34. His sons respond in vengeance and anger, and Jacob and his family ends up being not a blessing to the nations, but eventually a curse. Getting back to Bethel, getting back to Bethel is the test for Jacob. You know, if you think about Abram and Sarai, or eventually their names were Abraham and Sarah, their, their test was, is God really going to give me a child because they're barren right they're really old they can't have children physically is really good is god really going to fulfill what he promises so the son is abraham and sarah's test but bethel is kind of like jacob's test but the, the root issue is still the same right is god really going to do what he says Am I really going to have faith in God? Is he, and ought I to obey all the way and not just sort of part of the way? So there it was a rebuke. I think he knew he kind of wasn't obeying God completely. But it was also a comfort, this call. It was comforting because of what God wants him to remember in his worship. It's a comfort because of what God wants him to remember in his worship. So here, if, if Jacob must be faithful to God, he must believe in God. Look there, verse number one. And, and notice the details that God gives as to who Jacob is to make this altar to. It says there, make an altar to the God who appeared to you in your trouble. It's very specific. It's, just not, it's not just make an altar to God. That is to me, because God's speaking. It's make an altar to the God who appeared to you. In your trouble. This is an interesting reminder because God wants Jacob to worship with a recognition and acknowledgement, with a remembrance of who God is and what he had done for him. You know, at this point in time, Jacob is a very blessed man. Very blessed. Uh, just to review there, God gave the promises to Abraham and eventually to Isaac and then to Jacob. And the promises were that I'm going to give you lots of people from your line. Lots of people. You can't even count them. He says, also, I'm, um, he says also that uh, one from his line will go and be a blessing to the nations. Ultimately, that's Jesus Christ, according to the book of Galatians. And he also says that I'm going to give you a land. So basically, it's kingdom. It's kingdom through his, God's own promises. And here, God is moving to build a kingdom upon Jacob. So when he reaches this point, when God calls him to go back to Bethel, at Genesis chapter 35, verse 1, he is a wealthy man. He has a massive family. He has four wives, and, you know, without doubt, thank God he continues to use sinful people. 
he gains many of these wives through his own passions. But God continues to use him. He has 11 sons and one daughter, right? That's a people already. And later on, we see that he commands all those people to go ahead and multiply. And on top of that, God has lots of possessions. He has lots of wealth. He has servants. He has livestock. But it wasn't always so. He wasn't always a wealthy, blessed man. So with this command, with God's command, God wants Jacob to view all of those blessings in a certain way. God gives him the lenses through which he is to see and embrace and steward all those things as he goes into this specific land. And he does that by calling him to remember a time when he had nothing. God wants him to remember a time when he was at his lowest and remember, therefore, what God had done for him. And here, at that point in time, he really had nothing, right? Right? He's supposed to go back to the place uh, that Jacob ran to initially when he was running away from his family with nothing. At that point in time, when he had ran to Bethel originally, all he had was a brother behind him who wanted his head because he had stolen from him. And what was ahead of him was a lying cheat of an uncle who would continue to basically manipulate him for 20 years. He has nothing at Bethel the first time. He had exiled himself, and all he had was the danger of a knight and a stone for a pillow and a stone for his protection. And it's interesting, right? God says, I want you to go back to that place. I want you to go back to that memorial of your fears. That memorial that stands for your desperation. And I want you to build me an altar there. To God who appeared to you. Who sustained you. And who delivered you. God wants him to never forget where he came from. Right? In order that he might always remember what God has done. Uh, you know, the world might say this too, you know, don't forget where you came from. And I was chatting with some folks this morning and we were talking about how something's going around on Facebook that says, you know, straight out of somewhere. Um, and basically, that, it, this rapper, Dr. Dre, he's encouraging people to remember, oh, you know, remember where you came from, straight out of Hacienda Heights, in his case, Compton. Um, but the people, the world might say that in an effort to say, look, don't sell yourself out and don't sell out all the ones who are with you. All those people that you were with. But that's not God's focus. God's focus is not that we would sell ourselves out. It is that we would sell out God. So God wants Jacob to never forget where he came from. In order that Jacob would never sell out God. That he would never forget what God has done. Don't you ever forget Bethel. Straight out of Bethel I called you. You know, today we aren't commanded to set up altars of remembrance anymore. Christ's sacrifice on the cross and his payment for sin is what we look to ultimately to remember the fact that God has done it. That God has accomplished our salvation when at that time only the judgment of God was heading our way. Having sinned against him and rebelled against the only creator and king. But if you are like me, there are unique places, earthly places, that stand as memorials that help us point us to that cross. So for me, I love visiting my own stomping grounds, certainly no Compton, it's the city of Irvine. 
Um, for much of the city I grew up, uh, much of the city that I grew up in reminds me of my own darkness. It reminds me of my own rebellion, the hopelessness of my own sin. And then you can think, I can think about the University of California, Irvine, the university that I got into, but then because of various reasons, including forming lies about God and then believing my own lies about God, I basically gave up on life. I thought God didn't really care. I thought God wasn't a loving God. I thought God wasn't really involved. I thought God wasn't a helper. Contrary to all of what Scripture says. And so I basically gave up on life. And that university that I got accepted into nine months later kicked me out. UCI stands for me as a memorial of my sinfulness. But also of God's grace to me. When he met me in my distress. I can drive around Los Angeles. I can drive around Veteran and Wilshire Boulevard near UCLA when I was going to Santa Monica College. I'm reminded of wasted time. I'm reminded of sinful pursuits. I'm reminded of trying to live a life apart from God. Yet in my hard-heartedness, God met me there. Thinking about those times and these memorials of God's grace, so to speak, they come to remind me that God came to seek and save the lost. I was one of them. And then those memories move me to worship and encourage me to never forget what God has done for me in the cross. These places remind me how uh, me, his very own creation, designed to worship him, to be in a perfect relationship with him, went against him, decided to live my own rule and set up my own pretend kingdom. I declared that I was the king, that I was the creator But in so doing, I earned the very judgment of the true king. The Bible says even, eternal punishment in hell. But it reminds me too, not just of my sin, but it reminds me too of how God, the offended party, chose to give me a way out. And so he sent Christ to die in our place. And through his shed blood on the cross, through the bearing of my sin and the wrath that I deserve, he makes a way out for every sinner who will turn from their sins and believe on him. This is all by God's grace, because it is out of God's love that he sends Christ to earth, right? He came to save and to seek the lost, to rescue us from the domain of darkness and transfer us into the kingdom of his son. So friends... I wonder about your lives. Do you remember those places? All those ups and all those downs. Perhaps they are places that you actually never want to visit again. Because they stand as memorials to your fears and your sins and your failures. Friends, if you're visiting with us and you know yourself not to be a Christian. What you can learn from Jacob's life and my life even. And every life of the Christian in here is that your story indeed can change. You don't have to live a life forever downcast or always feeling the sting of sin. The Bible says that your story can change. If you look to God who redeems sinners, he created everything so certainly he can save us from our sin. You can continue to run. Run away from your mistakes. Run away from your sin. Run away from the fact that you are in rebellion against God, but just because you run doesn't mean the issues go away. And chances are, 
you know this. Because when you go back to visit those areas, a lot of those things come running to you, desiring to haunt you. But the cross, in the cross, Christ settles these things. Where you can go back and revisit all of these areas and all the difficulties of life and know that God himself was with me. Teaching me, bringing me back once again to my lowest point to remember that God is God and that we are man and that our help comes from outside of ourselves, not within ourselves. God gives us grace if you would repent of your sins and believe on Christ Jesus. Back to the story, regarding the story here. Having heard the command to go and worship while having God's grace on his mind, Jacob, it seems, apparently he takes it to heart. Look at the next verse there, verse 2. So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, Put away the foreign gods that are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments. Then let us arise and go up to Bethel so that I may make there an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. This call to worship involves certainly a knowledge of what God has done. That's what we just looked at. It also involves here total dedication or total consecration. Uh, this, this call to be dedicated and consecrated to the God of grace, who is present with us in the times of trouble, uh, here he, he reminds us, look, this is what I want you to remember. And so Jacob says, it seems like he's really taking this to heart. That God is definitely with him. That God has definitely answered him. It is the God who answers me in the day of my distress. So he listens, and he's the God who is present. He, he, he is Jacob's helper here. And so he says, put away the gods. These gods probably came from um, Jacob's father-in-law's house. His name is Laban. So Jacob's wife, Rachel, earlier on in the story, it says there that Rachel stole the gods from her father. Uh, perhaps she was clinging to you know, the gods of the land or paganism. Or the gods could have come from the loot that Jacob's sons got after they ransacked Shechem. But regardless of where these false gods came from, Jacob seizes the opportunity to teach his children. So he knows there is only one God. He knows that this God has answered him. He knows that this God has been present with him. And so he commands them, put away all of those falsehoods. Put it away. Because there is only one. Worship here involves total dedication to the one God. And, and then just as uh, God is pure, so Jacob calls his people to walk in that same purity. So this is total dedication, right, to the one God, but then they are also supposed to walk in the ways of this God. God is pure, his people ought to be pure. And he says there, purify yourselves and change your garments. These are basically phrases that uh, signify and symbolize purity. Uh, later on, when Moses writes the rest of the law, these things are codified, so they go into the law. Uh, certain uh, rituals that we today no longer need to do because we've been purified by Jesus. Uh, but this symbolism here, it points to uh, the cleansing that we can have through Jesus' blood, and it is through the changing garments uh, that symbolize basically the start of a new life, um, things like that. This purity also involved giving up earrings. So some of you guys know, you know, I used to wear an earring. Does that mean that I'm, I, I, I followed the commands here? Or if you yourself wear earrings, does this mean that you now have to give them up to us in effort to show your total dedication to God? The answer is no. 
I simply lost mine. Um, and I've been too lazy, and so you don't need to buy another one. Um, these earrings could have very well been identity markers uh, that the people who wore them belonged to this pagan god. And so obviously, if you're putting them on, signifying, I belong to this god, well, surprise, there's only one god who hears and who is present, so why do we need to identify with those gods? No, we are this gods. We are the sovereign creator gods. We are his creation. Alternatively, it seems like these ear- earrings possibly could have been made out of precious metals. And eventually, you know, perhaps they, maybe they were planning to uh, boil down these metals and then to make themselves an idol like they did in the book of Exodus. Uh, regardless, these things somehow were signified to or tied to this pagan worship. But Jacob knows that God is the only God. And he knows that his creation was designed to worship him, which necessarily involves walking in his ways pure, total dedication, total consecration. It's important for Israel, isn't it? Remember, Moses wrote the first five books of the Old Testament. And he's writing many hundreds of years after these events took place. And as he writes down the history, the history is supposed to teach the people of Israel. At that point in time, Israel was, you know, one to three million people, as I mentioned last week or a couple weeks ago. Uh, and there, they're standing on the brink of the land of promise, waiting to enter into it. What a fitting lesson to learn, isn't it? That God is the only God. That He alone can hear us, and that He alone will deliver us, and that He alone will be with us. Now put away the false gods. Give up your earrings. It's exactly the same things that the Israelites had in their possession when they left Egypt. Egypt, in fact, gave them stuff made of gold and precious metals, with which they used to build the golden calf. Unfortunately, Israel didn't take this lesson to heart. Nevertheless, these events were to be very much on the mind of Israel, and it's not a coincidence that when Israel, again, is about to enter into the land, Joshua 24, 23 says, Joshua calls the Israelites to the very same thing, and interestingly, interestingly enough, in the very same place, In the place of Shechem. So Joshua says there, Joshua 24, verse 23, Then put away the foreign gods that are among you, and incline your heart to the Lord, the God of Israel. That's Yahweh overall. You know, God desires the same things of all those who follow him. It's not just Jacob, it's not just Israel, but it's the church today. Some of us may come from families that worship physical gods. God calls you, if you're a Christian, to be putting those things away. This is what we see in the Old Testament. It's also what we see in the New Testament there. So, for example, in Acts chapter 19, when people who had been practicing witchcraft come to know Jesus, the one and true and only God, this is what it says. These folks were practicing magic arts and stuff like that. They, quote, came confessing... And divulging their practices. So they believe in Jesus. They're practicing the the magic arts. They come to the church. They believe in Christ. And they confess and they divulge. This is Acts chapter 19 verses 8 and 9. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. No longer are they connected with those things. They're done with those things. No need to worship other gods because God alone saves. 
There's some of us here, most of us probably here, come from families where you might not worship physical gods, but you worship functional gods like pleasure, comfort, sex, drugs, money, jobs, security, fame, whatever. God also calls you to stop worshiping these things and be dedicated to him and him alone. Be dedicated to the one who saves, the one who delivers, the one who listens, the one who is present. And if you're a Christian, you know, you have to consider that one who loves God will indeed put them away. And I'm not, I'm not saying that it's easy all the time. Many of us know, as I've spoken to you recently, that this is hard. Because we're always tempted to believe that those things of the earth will continue to satisfy just as God satisfies. But you see how if someone is a true Christian who really genuinely knows God, they will want to let these things go? If God is really the God who is present with us, the God who delivers us from our sins, the God who forgives us, what do you say about this God and to God if you keep a little something on the side? You say your God isn't all that present after all. That he doesn't really fully deliver. That he may not fully forgive and so you need to you feel the need to work for your salvation and to do good deeds in effort to earn as opposed to a faithful response to the salvation that god grants us uh, right clinging to something on the side just simply doesn't make sense and jacob knows it jacob knows that god is his keeper his helper and so he therefore wants all glory and honor and praise to go to him because he owns it and here he wants his descendants to know too that very same thing so what what's the result here what happens look there in 35 5 god protects the people in order that they would make it into the promised land in order that they could worship it says there a terror from god fell upon the cities that were around them and keep in mind they needed this terror because in the previous chapter we saw there that all the nations would have been really ticked at them Right uh, In the previous chapter, Jacob's sons took revenge against the people of Shechem for what they did to Jacob's daughter. Again, for the blooming nation of Israel, this would have been very encouraging to read this story, this history, as Jacob and his family went back into the promised land. Right, Whose power would they rely upon? Again, Israel doesn't really seem to take this lesson to mind, and they end up trusting living by sight and not by faith. So back to the story, when Jacob actually gets to Bethel where God had met him in the first place earlier on when he was brought to nothing, his lowest point there, verse 7 says, Jacob built an altar and he called that place El Bethel. But what God does here, or what Jacob does here is that he gives this the place another name, right? This memorial, he gives it another name. In Genesis 28, he calls it Bethel. Or house of God. Here Jacob renames it El Bethel, the God of the house of God. So the question is, why rename this memorial? Why go from house of God to the God of the house of God? This change is slight, but it's hugely significant. Right? Earlier God revealed himself in that place. So Jacob, being kind of young in his faith, focuses on the place of revelation as opposed to the God of Revelation. That's what seems to be going on here. Earlier on, he focuses on the place. Whoa, this is an amazing place. God has revealed himself here, so I'm going to call this place the house of God. 
But now, God reveals something to him, and he gets it, finally. Now he focuses on the God of Revelation. This is a massive turning point for Jacob. He knows his God. This is proof here that he owns his God. He also knows the folly of man in that trusting anything other than God absolutely fails. Right? He couldn't trust in himself. He's the one who got him into trouble. He's the one who deceived his brother. He's the one who listened to his mom. He can't trust his mother. She's the one who gave him the idea to cheat his father and rob his brother in the first place. And her words had failed him personally. So if we're trusting in man here, we're supposed to learn this very clear lesson that no man can save us. Or I should say, no one who is only man can save us. You know what her last words, Jacob's mom's last words were in Genesis 27 verse 45? She says there, this is her, and she's trying to look out for her beloved son. She says, flee, then I will send and bring you from there. She says, you go, and then I will bring you back. I'm the one who hatched the plan, and I will bring you back. After one decade, he didn't hear anything. After the second decade, he still didn't hear anything. Three decades, because he spent the last one traveling around Succoth and then a place called Shechem, and still nothing. You hear those words, and they just sort of trickle down and land on the ground because they aren't powerful. And this is, this is man's words, right? This is what happens when you trust in man. Scripture reminds us of this folly. And you know how Scripture reminds us of this folly? Rebecca, Jacob's mom, is not memorialized in Genesis like the other wives of the patriarchs. We readers feel, feel the sting of silence regarding Rebecca, especially given the fact that Rebecca's nurse, Deborah, is memorialized. So look in Genesis chapter 35, verse 8. It says there, And Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died, and she was buried under the oak below at Bethel. All that specificity regarding her death, that's memorialization there. That's remembering this beloved nurse that served Jacob and his family so apparently well. But nothing is said about Rebekah. Genesis chapter, or the end of Genesis, uh, Jacob just simply skips over the burial of Rebecca. Well, that's point number one. God calls us to a life of worship, which necessarily involves knowing who God is and what he has done. And this life of worship necessarily involves living a life that's dedicated to him. That's point number one. Uh, next, we see in point number two, from this conclusion, this wrapping up of Jacob's, the focus of Jacob here, we see that God calls us to rely on him and his sovereign promises. God calls us to rely on him and his sovereign promises. You know, the first time that God revealed himself to Jacob, he gave him the call and command, go and worship. This last revelation, God, mind you, doesn't reveal himself to anybody until Moses in the burning bush. So this is significant here. Hundreds of years are going to pass by where there is kind of silence, at least when it comes to his personal divine revelation. But this is what he says. He gives his promises there in 35, 9 to 15. Go ahead and look there. I'll read that. God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Padan Aram and blessed him. And God said to him, your name is Jacob. No longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. And, Jacob said, and God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you. And kings shall come from your own body. 
The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac I will give to you, and I will give the land to your offspring after you. Then God went up from him in that place where he had spoken with him. And Jacob set up a pillar in that place where he had spoken with him, a pillar of stone. He poured out a drink offering on it and poured oil on it. So Jacob called the name of the place where God had spoken with him, Bethel. So there seems to be that Jacob gives gives that place two names. But the emphasis remains the same. The city went on and was called Bethel. But here he obviously renames it El Bethel, the God, the house of God. God was the one who was with him. And so God reiterates his divine promises to Jacob. There's something important to note is that this whole Jacob episode, running for his life, then being trapped by his uncle, and then being brought to the low point, this whole Jacob episode is kind of enveloped in God's promises. So you have Genesis chapter 28, go ahead and turn there. Genesis chapter 28 and then Genesis chapter 35 verse 12. Let's go back to Genesis chapter 28 and look and see what happens as God gives him the promises there where God meets him the first time at Bethel in verse 13. And in both of these sets of promises, they address the same types of things. There is a declaration of who he is. There is God's promise of a land and then there's God's promise of an offspring Genesis chapter 28, verse 13, And God, the Lord, stood above it, that is the latter, and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you. And will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. There seems to be the same elements there in 35 and 28. Declaration, promise of the land, promise of offspring. But something's missing in 35 that's present in 28. It's that last verse in 28 that we read there in verse 15. Behold, I am with you. And will keep you wherever you go. And I will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you. Until I have done what I have promised you. So the question is why is it missing in 35? It's here in the beginning when Jacob's at his low. But when he comes back after 30 years of wandering and suffering. And seeing God deliver him. Why is it not mentioned there? I think it's because we we now know in Genesis chapter 35 that. This is what God has been doing all along. This is what God's been addressing for all of these chapters, for all these 30 years. The fact that God is present and that he does what he says, that's the truth that kind of propels us into this story of Jacob. Now, Rebecca's words might send us propelling, right? Might send Jacob propelling. Okay, mom, I'm going to go and I know you're going to call me back. She doesn't. Fail. But God's words here sends us propelling into the story of Jacob. And the whole time we see a fulfillment of those very words. So I think in Genesis chapter 35, the reason why it's not present is because God has been working it out all along. Is this not the point that God will do it? Is this not the point of God changing Jacob's name or this reiteration, the stating of this name change? It's kind of like made official here in Genesis chapter 35. 
verse 10 there, Jacob's name goes from Jacob, which means grasping at the heels, to Israel. You have overcome with God and so with man. Had not Jacob overcome because of God? That is, overcome Laban, overcome Esau, overcome the Shechemites, overcome the people of the land. The surrounding nations, because the terror of God fell upon them. Jacob had known that God had done it. The fact that God will do it, is this not inherent in the very declaration of God's name too? Here God declares it freely in verse 11. I am God over all. And there you're supposed to think of Genesis chapter 1 where God creates everything. He's sovereign over all things. But there was a time when God would not declare his name to Jacob. In Genesis chapter 32, verse 29, God tests him and God wrestles with Jacob. And Jacob cries out, please tell me your name. And God rebukes him. He should know that this is God, that he is the sovereign one. He should have remembered that it was he who promised to be with him, who promised to deliver him, who pledged his faithfulness to him. And he says, why is it that you ask my name? But after being tested and sifted and having failed and then having been picked up by God himself, what does God do? He reminds him, I am God Almighty. And I have done it. Jacob knew. Considering his family, he knew that God had done it. Eleven sons, one daughter, the twelfth son to be added very soon. Before it was just Abraham. And then God's chosen one, Isaac. And then there was God's chosen one, Isaac. And then the chosen one, Jacob. And then now it's Jacob and 12 children, soon to be 13 children. And so how wonderful it is there that God tells Jacob and all his family, just go on, be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from your own body. Kings shall come from your own body. Most importantly, Christ the king who comes from the line of Judah. And then even the land would have been a reminder to Jacob that God had done it. Look there in verse 12. The land that I gave Abraham and Isaac, I will give to you. And I will give the land to your offspring after you. He's standing in the land, right? God had brought him back to the land. He said, I give it to you. All of Jacob's life was proof that God had done it. That God had fulfilled all of those promises that he had given, him, given uh, Jacob in Genesis chapter 28, verses 13 to 15. These truths, that God fulfills everything He promises, that God is present with His people, these truths are what propel us not only through the stories of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and then Israel, but all of Scripture, particularly Jesus, that God is with us. In Emmanuel, God the Son taken on flesh to die on the cross for his people's sins. He makes a way out. Just like he made a way out for Jacob to come back to the land, so he is making a way for his people to go to the land of heaven through Jesus Christ, the only sacrifice for sins. And just as he is with Israel, just as he is with Jesus, so he is with the church, friends. He's with us, fulfilling his very promises with us even right now. I think Jacob was so keenly aware of this when he finally worships there in Bethel. He builds this altar to God there in verses 14 to 15. And Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he had spoken with him, a pillar of stone. He poured oil on it. That's the drink offering. So Jacob called the name of the place where God had spoken with him, Bethel. 
When God had given him the promises in Genesis 28, that chapter says he got up in the morning, he set up a pillar of stone, and he poured oil on it. But his worship was half-hearted back there in 28, right? He's still young, he's still immature in the faith. God is still developing a patriarch. He worships, but then he puts conditions on God. He says, okay, God, I recognize that you've given me this way out. I recognize that you're with me. I recognize that you're, deliver- that you're delivering me. But if you will be with me, if you will keep me, then the Lord shall be my God. He puts conditions on this sovereign God as if he has every right to. But here in Jacob, he stands there a different man, back in God, the house of God. He owns God for himself, not because God fulfilled Jacob's conditions, but because he knows that God fulfills his own conditions, and all by his grace. And if God lives by his sovereign promises, right, if that's what compels God, his own sovereign promises and his character to be faithful to those promises, we would be fools to not live by them also. For us today, our lesson is the same, same lesson that it was for Israel back then. If you don't always, if you don't know these truths, we will always be tempted to live by what we ourselves can see, what we ourselves think is wise, as opposed to living by faith in God who is wise. For us, just like Old Testament Israel, this history proved that God had made himself known and that he was faithful, faithful to his promises. Israel was to learn that just as God's plan was moving forward in Jacob's time, so it was in their time. There stood Israel, one to three million strong, about to enter into the promised land, and they had the opportunity at that moment to review their past, their sometimes sordid past, and remember where they came from, and the fact that God was sustaining them, and then go on to live a life of worship, believing, grasping on to God's sovereign promises. There was national significance there. Together, the nation could look back and see God's work in the past and so be encouraged in the present. You look, look there in the rest of this in the rest of this chapter, Genesis chapter thirty-five, and you see here how they're reviewing their history, and God had fulfilled and brought them to the place where they were. I mean, they received the twelfth son to make up eventually the twelve tribes of Israel. The origin of the twelve tribes here in verse sixteen it says. <clears throat> that through on their way back to Ephrath, which is Bethlehem. There's no, there's no reason given for why they go back to Ephrath, but they go. Rachel went into labor, and she had hard labor. And when her labor was at its hardest, the midwife said to her, Do not fear, for you have another son. And her soul was departing, for she was dying. She called his name Ben-Oni, but his father called him Benjamin. So Rachel died, and she was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. And Jacob set up a pillar over her tomb. It is the pillar of Rachel's tomb, which is there to this day. Israel journeyed on and pitched his tent beyond the Tower of Eder. So here Rachel names her son Ben-Oni, which means son of my sorrow. Jacob renames him son of my right hand, indicating favor, strength, position. For Rachel, Benjamin was actually an answer to God, answer to her own prayers. Imagine that. I mean, it's so clear that Rachel was sort of jostling with Leah and fighting over her husband. But in God's kindness here, he answers her prayers. Verse 1 of chapter 30, she says, Give me children or I shall die. She says that to Jacob. 
God had given her Joseph, but here she, uh, God gives her another child. And with this child, Israel's sons come to number 12. And with this 12, there would come to number a multitude. But this blessing, of course, this blessing of to the family came through suffering. Rachel dies, giving birth to Benjamin. She, without doubt, is memorialized in Scripture as the beloved of Isaac, or the beloved of Jacob. And then she and Leah are praised as building up the founder, founding the house of Israel, at least on the woman's side. I mean, for Israel, what an opportunity it would have been, right? One to three million strong, about to go into the land, about to establish their own kingdom, and then for them to hear 22 to 26. This roll call of the, of the tribe, so to speak. First time read in the book of Genesis. Now the sons of Leah, Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun. The sons of Rachel, Joseph, and Benjamin. The sons of Bilhah, Rachel's servant, Dan, and Naphtali. The sons of Zilpah, Leah's servant, Gad, and Asher. These were the sons of Jacob who were born to him in Padan Aram. Even though this might have been a great time of encouragement to Israel, this conclusion would remind them, too, of something a little bit darker. Something that we, too, are reminded of. Even in this conclusion, Jacob's return to the promised land, there's just something they cannot shake. That is sin. This story and all the stories that we see consistently, what we see here is God's power to save his promises, his faithfulness, his presence, despite man's unshakable sin. Whether it be Abraham's sin, or Isaac's sin, or Jacob's sin, or Jacob's children's sin, in, G- in Genesis chapter 34, we saw there Simeon and Levi, they respond in anger, they respond in revenge. Here, though, in Genesis chapter 35, we have the sin of Reuben, Jacob's firstborn. Look at verse 22. Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard of it. So what's going on here is certainly sexual immorality, but more than sexual immorality is the sin of wanting to overthrow Jacob. It's basically pushing Jacob out of his way here by the means of taking what is in his bed. And this is something that Absalom, one of David's sons, uh, what he does in 2 Samuel chapter 16. But this is not it, right? Sin will continue in the hearts of everyone. The rest of Genesis tells another sordid story. Jacob's sons out of jealousy sell one of their brothers into slavery. And yet, God continues to prove himself faithful. Thank God that in his plan to redeem and save, he overcomes the sinfulness of man. Just as he did with the forefathers, he would do with Jacob's sons. Just as he did with Jacob's sons, so he would do with all of Israel. Who believe, And just as he does, does with Israel, so he does with the church. So friends, you realize that God is working to bring about his promises amongst us? You guys realize that? God himself right now is working amongst us to bring about his promises. To overcome our own sinfulness. And thank God he does. In reading the story of Genesis, we might be tempted to focus on the issues of famine. We might be tempted to focus on the issues of barrenness, of enemies, of many other things. But the main problem, without doubt so far, is man's sin. God hasn't promised that he will build a nation on us or that kings will come from our line. But he does desire a whole lot of things from us, doesn't he? 
He promises that First Baptist Church and every other gospel preaching church, He promises that we all will be a holy people. In fact, He commands that we all will be a holy people. It says that in First Peter. He, he commands that we as a church will display His glory through Christ as we preach Christ, and then as we live our life through Christ, changed by Christ, trusting in His promises. And I know that even some of you this week, I'm sure you know that that sin... That sinful desire. While Christ has freed us from that, these are something that still lurks in your very own shadows. Just as every generation of God's people are tested, so we too are being tested. So we too, if we genuinely believe, if we have repented and believed, we too are find ourselves just like Jacob. Time and time again, we get ourselves into problems, but God is so faithful to overcome his people's depravity. Praise God. There's so many challenges to living life as a church. So many challenges that seek to mar our reflection of Christ's character. So think about it like this. Whether we sin against each other. Whether we disagree with one another. Maybe at times we just simply misunderstand each other. Sometimes we might feel like there is nothing in this world that will change the other person's heart. And if you know yourself well enough, you know, too, that oftentimes you feel that there is nothing in this world that will change your own heart. Except the gospel of Jesus Christ. Christ has given us his very own spirit and his very own word. And just as he moved towards Jacob in love, so he moves towards his people in love. So in the gospel, we know how to move towards other people in love, with the same Christ-like love, with confession, with forgiveness, with clearing misunderstanding, and even having the heart to want to do that. Striving to bring unity and love where Satan wants only to tear apart. With his spirit and his word, we can know that we are to forgive as Christ has forgiven. You realize that you... Christian have been given to this church in order to remind your fellow Christian your fellow sinner that Christ has overcome your sin and their sin and you do this we all do this by living a life that points people to Jesus Christ to the fulfillment Christ who fulfills all of his promises so let us together be ready to forgive ready to confess ready to reconcile an effort that we might display God's very own character. That just as God is with us, so we too, being Christ's people, are with one another, even in our very own failures. Let us remember that God is a God of grace, a God of faith, and that we ought to obey Him, not to win or work for our salvation, but because it has already been won on the cross of Jesus Christ. Let us all stand as memorials to God's grace. Well, in Genesis chapter 5, to conclude here, we have the conclusion to the season of Jacob's life, as well as the passing of Isaac, the passing of a torch. Look there at 27 to 29. And Jacob came to his father Isaac at Mamre, or Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, where Abraham and Isaac had sojourned. Now the days of Isaac were 180 years. 
And Isaac breathed his last, and he died and was gathered to his people, old and full of days. And his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. With the death of Isaac here, the next generation takes over. Jacob is the official patriarch, even though the focus will be on his sons, Joseph, and how God preserves them, even through Egypt's Egypt's, uh, basically ownership of them. And though it's been difficult, Jacob had his heart tested and tried, and he was taught the lesson that anyone who believes in the God of the Bible um, needs to confess there exactly what Jacob confesses. God who answers me in the day of my distress, who has been with me wherever I have gone. Isn't that a wonderful, marvelous statement of Christ? God loves his people so much that he walks here on earth. He suffers with his people in order that he might know his people, in order that he might be a faithful high priest, as the book of Hebrews says, who faithfully intercedes for his people. And he gives grace freely. He forgives freely and fully. That's great evidence, marvelous evidence of the fact that he has been with us in our distress. We are reminded of our ongoing need to worship here, recalling what God alone has done for us, living a life of total dedication to the one true God, and then we also see our ongoing need to live according to God's sovereign promises. So for us, First Baptists, let us strive to live by God's sovereign promises, believing not in our own effort or work, but in the work of Christ on the cross. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, Lord, we recognize that we stand in the same place as Jacob. That we ourselves are sinful. But Lord, how awesome is it that you are a gracious God who draws near to your people. You are a God who makes a way for your people. And everything you have promised, so you will fulfill. We thank you, we praise you, Lord, for being a faithful God. Lord, we pray as we go on and live our lives, we pray that we would cling to Christ, knowing that it is through His blood that He purchases for His people salvation, forgiveness of sin. And through Your Son, God the Father, You lavish grace and love upon Your people. We also recognize too, Lord, that it is Your grace that preserves us in this life of faith. So, Lord, we pray that as sometimes we feel like we just need to make it to the end of the day, Lord, we pray that you would give us grace to persevere. We pray that you would preserve us by your grace and through your power as you are our helper and our keeper. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are the God who has been with us and a God who hears us. We pray, Lord, that we would ascribe all glory and power to your name for all of our lives in this race of faith. In your name we pray, amen.